up, gang? What? Fuck, let me start over. What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm Van Jackson, here with my co-hosts, Kate Kaiser hey. and Hunter Marsden. Sorry. Hey, hey. So it's been a minute since we've been on the pod together. The variety show format, I had to like recall what, what we're doing. So for the audience, we've each got a quick hit. Uh, we're going to bring up something that's burning our biscuits, good or bad. Uh, we've each got a contribution for stay off Twitter. And then Kate's going to lead off on uh, armchair analysis, which is going to be fun. <laughs> so uh, for quick hits, I, I guess I'm, I'm talking so I can go first if if you guys don't care. In DC, there was a rally, a big one, called Rage Against the War Machine. I don't know when it started, but it's an annual thing now. It's got a good name, I'll be honest. It was a loud, big thing, but it got fuck all news attention. There was no coverage anywhere that I saw outside of like social media. And people were asking me what I thought about the protest. And I, I think I was eliciting questions about it because I was not saying anything about it. But the reason I was quiet was because it's really uh, controversial in, in like fucking weird ass ways. So some of what this rally is advocating for is like legitimate anti-war positions. And if you advocate consistently from a place of, of pacifism or consistent anti-imperialism, I have no problem with that, you know? Even if I might like disagree with some of the positions, I would still signal boost that, especially principled pacifists. I feel like they should have a greater attention share or something in the discourse, even though that's not necessarily where I'm coming from. But there were like features of the rage against the war machine uh, rally that are like really problematic. So like one, <laughs> the main speakers were a who's who of, of people who had street cred as voices of conscience at like once upon a time, but then they've either like gone crazy or they've compromised themselves in some way that makes it like impossible to take them seriously. Tulsi Gabbard, right? Mm -hmm. A far right Putin Assad apologist, but she calls herself a Democrat because she comes from Hawaii politics where there are no Republicans basically. Um, so you have to, <laughs> you have to be a Democrat, you know? Jimmy Dore, the comedian, I'm sure everybody knows about him, um, pretty controversial. Jill Stein, Green Party candidate, but also these like weird ties to Putin and Mike Flynn. Max Blumenthal, the gray zone, conspiracy theory guy, Ron Paul. And a lot of these people, they characterize them as being far left, but there's like almost nothing in their advocacy that represents like leftist principles. And even if it did, them being the poster children of this thing is like not a good uh, look. But then like the policy agenda, it was weird too. Like it wasn't just the faces, it was the policy stuff that they were pushing because like most of it was about cutting off U.S. support for the Ukrainian military. And there's a debate that could be had there on certain terms, you know, but it was supplemented with demands to free Julian Assange, which is like, if I'm being honest, is often a red flag in conversations, slashing the defense budget, which I agree with, but like there's a good way and a dumb way to make that case, you know, disbanding NATO, which again, there's like a good and bad way to, to argue about that. But the timing also matters and the time to argue about that is probably not when Putin's invading another country. So like noxious political celebrities, this kind of like sketch 
foreign policy agenda or at least unthoughtful foreign policy agenda. And then the biggest red flag was that there were actual prominent neo-fascists in the crowd and there were like sweaters and flags and shit sport like supporting Russia. Literally, it's not just useful idiot thing is like a way of like not engaging somebody's argument. It's like a delegitimation tactic. But this is like way worse than that. This is like actually touting literally and directly Putin's agenda and like Putin's interests, you know, and that's very toxic. Like also trying to claim that Russia is the anti-war actor. In this scenario. Yeah, like- it was reframing Russia as like basically innocent and Ukraine is dragging us into making Russia an enemy. And it's like, man, that's so divorced from reality. Like, what? I don't even know what to do with it, you know? It's such abuser logic. Like, I just think of, like, yeah. you know, like, in abusive relationships, is like, oh, the abuse is your fault. You're the one bringing it on yourself, right? And it's, I just, you know, I think it's such an exercise of people actually need to interrogate what anti-war means. Because as you were saying, like, I think if it's from like an actual place of principled pacifism, that's a conversation to be had. And I might, you know, gently nudge them that like, it's just not a realistic situation, right? That like an international peace movement is going to change Putin's mind at this point, And we have to, de- we have to help people defend themselves, right? But there's a there's just this dynamic i think over and over that like this much more isolationist i think vein of the left is representative of what the majority of the left thinks about the world and how it views the world and i think there might be some overlaps for sure like nato comes to mind of course but it's this i think it's really important we'll get into more of this i think on this podcast but it's so important to like understand who you're actually talking about and like their background and what they're representing and like why they might be saying the things that they're saying. It's not to say that everything is politically motivated, but in this day and age, unfortunately it kind of is. <laughs> yeah. I, I said, I think I said on Twitter, you know, if you're opposed to war, I didn't weigh in on the rage against the war machine thing, but I just said sort of veiled um, subtweet or something like opponents of war need theories of peace and theories of change and so it's like you've got to have an argument that connects the policies that you want to the outcomes that you want right in the world like how is how does this become a more peaceful situation by doing what you want and like that part of the rally is obviously pretty thin but the theory of change part is how you guard against becoming steve bannon's best buddy you know, like that's how the, the theory is the theory of change here that you ally with fascists and then regurgitate Putin's talking points. And then that's the that is going to be the change that you seek. Was that what Martin Luther King was fucking talking about? You know, this this is not good for the progressive cause that you claim to support, you know? Hey, man, tanky's got a tanky. Well, that's the thing. It's like it's this more this like it's more of like an ideological alignment in theory, right? This happened when Trump was trying to go to war in Venezuela and like the code pinks of the world started like making the argument that like the left should be aligned with Maduro because he's a socialist. And it's Mm -hmm. like, (laughs) is that really like what we're going to base alliances on? Because then like we're aligning ourselves with just a different set of corrupt, abusive actors. Right. So it's just, it's, it's an, I, 
I there's going back to theory of change, like there's no theory of safety there, right? And actually, how do you yeah. build it? Yeah, what's your theory of least harm? You know, like you have to make sure that like to the extent you're going to advocate for some kind of position that you've worked through in your head, how it's going to be the least harmful of whatever choices are available to the people who are affected. And if you don't have that or if you haven't thought through that, then like, I don't know, you probably believe North Korea is a people's republic, a democratic people's republic. <laughs> anyway, what do you guys got? So I'd, I'd highlighted this story uh that david malpass the um head of the world bank the president of the world bank uh said he would step down this past week and uh this comes amidst a great deal of criticism of his views on climate change uh, in the past he had denied a link between fossil fuel emissions and climate change and reporters had uh dogged him for years about these claims uh, unsurprisingly, perhaps he was a Trump appointee, uh, and you know now uh, has decided that the time has come for him to pursue new challenges, et cetera, et cetera. But it's significant given that the new, world new Bank... problems to deny. Sorry, <laughs> exactly. The World Bank is one of the world's uh, largest lenders and has been criticized for not doing enough to lend to nations in need of climate resilience and. Uh, climate change uh, action plans. So uh, probably a, a good change to come. Hopefully uh, his replacement is a sensible, uh, pragmatic uh, person who can do more on the climate front. Uh, but good riddance to David Malpass. Here, here. There's a, there's a lot of those Trump appointees still kind of just hanging out in various institutions. Like, I was hoping that someone during those years and assumed that someone was like tracking all of the terrible things and all of the terrible people that they, you know, pushed into government, right? To then hopefully go back and pull them back out of government as Trump did. I mean, when he went into office, but that hasn't really happened. Yeah. I, I came in in the early Obama administration. At the time, they were trying to work through this problem that they called burrowing. Mm -hmm. So from the George W. Bush years, there were a number of political appointees who were embedded within various agencies, but they were not they were not always a Schedule C, which means that your your term of appointment ends when the president leaves. You're a political appointee. So when the politics shifts, you're fucking out of there. But the borrowers came in on a different administrative status that allowed them to be to, to stay beyond their their welcome, I guess, uh, including as career civil servants sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so they would be like these overtly political people who had that reputation. Um, and this was like especially obnoxious in the fucking Pentagon. But then they had the, the protected status of like a normal career civil servant. And as long as they didn't show their like freak flag too high partisan wise, they they could like live under that veil of like, oh, I'm just a oh shucks, I'm a civil servant or whatever. I just hold these but, like, views. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. So the Obama administration was trying to smoke some of those people out. Because at the time, especially like the Bush 
brand and the neocon thing was like seen as really really toxic mm -hmm. and then eventually we like made our peace with it or whatever like a couple people got put into shit jobs and encouraged to leave but um this was like a real problem and then obama's people tried to do the same burrowing strategy as they were leaving and they were appointing people left and right in like schedule a which was like a new thing and these different statuses and i don't want to say there was like any credence to like Trump's grievances about like deep state or whatever, but they were going after those Obama embeds, if you will. But Trump outbid Obama on this and like Trump put in a shitload of burrowers yeah. and they live in the system, stoking China rivalry, tanking the Iran deal. I mean, like killing arms control as we know it, like they're in there advocating for those things. They're just doing it without a GOP banner behind them. In the screenshot this, this is a recurring problem that every administration has to deal with to some extent but it sounds like you're suggesting the trump administration actually had more burrowers uh in the system yes and they're more partisan too like yeah. so each president seems to be outbidding the previous one and like doing it even more gratuitously but also the partisan nature of the trump people is like they're on a different wavelength well, that and the corporate nature. Yeah. I mean, almost all of them from industry, if they have any like policy yes. say. So like mm -hmm. they're more overtly corrupt, more overtly reactionary. The mall pass guy is a great example. Yes. I, I think there are people even worse than than him, if that's possible. Like people who are more like fashy. But yeah, he's not a winner by any means. So like <laughs> Yeah. Well, and Trump wanted to take it further and he wanted to like actually politicize the civil service and mess with Schedule F. Right? right. And so and the Congress still hasn't like legislatively outlawed that. So, you know, a new <laughs> new president and that's still on the docket. I mean, that's kind of the last vestige of like depoliticizing the federal government in terms of the bureaucracy. Yeah, that's the that's the big looming danger that like if I was a civil servant right now, I would be f freaking the fuck out about, frankly, like the cause Pompeo did an interview not long ago where he said this whole Schedule F thing, like on our first hundred days, we're going to implement that, which means that we can fire all the civil servants in the U.S. government and then rehire them on the basis of loyalty tests. And it's like, that turns everybody into a Schedule C fucking toady, you know? Like, that's how you create an entire state of fascists. That's, what's the word? Culmination, consecration. That's the fucking apex of like, okay, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, at that point, it's all fucked. We let it get this far, now it's fucked, and this just makes it official. It's the rubber stamp of like, we're fucked. Yeah, really well, bad. On top of how much how many uh, local judges he had appointed uh, the Trump administration had appointed put in place across the country and uh, alongside patriotic education this this would have been quite the uh, perfect storm well and that's the thing it's still there it's just hanging out because no one's actually done anything to like this administration has spent no time doing like prevention of like you know learning the lesson of the end of the Obama years you know, when they didn't actually destroy the Nisir's program and they like didn't actually want to prevent various like institutional legacies from them being leveraged for terrible bad faith purposes. I mean, where's the task force to like 
protect the state from fascist infiltration? I mean, like, you know, or like, how do we guard, how do we guard society from the state? You know what I mean? Because the state, like how evil the state is depends on who's controlling those levers, man. And we've just given the state unlimited powers. So it's like, and that has been the primary task of the Biden administration in my mind. And it's the, the one thing they've done absolutely fuck all about. I didn't expect this to come out of your quick hit, but. I was just going to make that comment. How did you respond to this conversation? It's Pandora's box of shit. Um, <laughs> I thought it would be quick too. Yeah. <laughs> Well, mine, mine actually might be quick. Um, so I just want to give a quick shout out um, to Olufemi Tawo for his new article in, it's called A Framework to Help Us Understand the World um, in Hammer and Hope, which is a new Black culture and politics um, magazine, which if you haven't checked it out, it's excellent. So you definitely should because his article is one of many excellent entries. But I want to give a shout out because he provides like what is a really, I think, accessible primer on racial capitalism as kind of like an orienting framework to understand how the world operates today. Mm -hmm. But I think the other thing that he pulls out that I really appreciated was I feel like so many conversations, and he kind of talks about this, but um, so many conversations on the left, right, about like what's driving different um, events in the world is like it's it's very it often gets like very siloed, like it's only about the economics, right? And that's the only thing we need to pay attention to, or it's only kind of about like social drivers of change and like these like this kind of flip side of that economic framework. And what he shows is like actually by adding race to your class analysis, what you're doing is like actually expanding your understanding of how systems of oppression actually like feed back on each other, yeah. right? And reinforce and it's multi-layered then, right? And so I, you know, I think often these like woke discussions get distilled down into, you know, it being like some conspiracy about, I, I mean, who, who knows? I like try not to read their crazy papers because there are many of them out there. Um, the baseline of it, right, is this is this reality about how economics um, actually do impact right our social conditions. And I think like the state often goes through great lengths to show that that is not the case. In conversations in D.C. foreign policy, it's like you don't talk about economics. That's like a whole different yeah. policy area. Right. And I think that's just such a detriment to our national security thinking because it, it like removes all the in, a big part of like incentives in life for people. Right. You're 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 forgetting foreign policy for the middle class. <laughs> oh, did, does the middle class still exist? I, I missed it. <laughs> I, I have a picture of myself holding up a fucking Elizabeth Warren coffee mug being it's saying something about like middle class, whatever. And I was looking at it nostalgically like, what does that even represent? Who's the middle class now? Fucking three Uber jobs, you count as middle class. Um, but Femi, old Femi is really good on this stuff. Yeah. Well, I yeah. just think like the, I think people are really uncomfortable with this idea that like the working class is growing, right? That that is actually what represents, like most people identify with. Um, I think, you know, mm -hmm. and it's so correlated to privilege and racial privilege at the end of the day. And I think, you know, like, it's so interesting because I was very much raised with the whole like color blindness, you know, approach to racism. And that just reinforces not only like indignities and inequities that exist, but 
it also just it's so ahistorical right like it's just it's yeah. it's part we were talking about like a fashy like how do we save the government from becoming fashy and it's like actually we as a country have spent like two centuries where the people with the majority of power and resources right have like worked to construct this story of who we are that fits like their own power centers structures yeah. that they built and i I, it, I don't feel like people are so afraid to name these things, but it's so mm. essential to name them to like actually be able to break them down because otherwise we're just, it feels like we're kind of like shooting in the dark, right? Of like, oh, it's just all terrible. But like, we have to have some type of orienting framework that I think brings it together. That isn't like, it's just this, I very multi-causal <laughs> in my brain. Yeah. He had a good line at the end of the piece where he's, he was like, you know, use, use this phrase racial capitalism or don't mm -hmm. it doesn't change the reality that like if you're trying to operate from a blueprint that's faithful to the world as it is then you have to acknowledge these things right you have to acknowledge that the way the state apparatus works the way it concentrates power and wields power over society uh over democracy like it produces these outcomes that are consequential at the level of racial hierarchy at like you can see the outcome differences yeah. and so public policy has to account for that mm -hmm. you can call that shit racial capitalism or not the blueprints the blueprint you know i mean so like i thought that was good because it's like he doesn't want to get bogged down in like if you just say the right words everything is going to be better and like i feel like that's the democratic party strategy <laughs> The Democratic Party's like, all right, what words do we have to say to make sure we don't have to change anything? <laughs> it's just like, it's all vibes, no redistribution. Yeah. Okay. Tweets? Okay. Oh, here we go. Um, all right. So my tweet this week for Stay Off Twitter, it's from Leonard Bernardo, who is executive vice president at the uh, Open Society. And he says, Joe Biden is far more conservative than I am. But to his credit, I think he has seen what the progressive movement is doing in this country. And he feels comfortable with some of our ideas. And I appreciate that. Uh, hyphen Bernie Sanders. Biden is a perplexing character figure. He's surprised me in many ways. He's, he's shown to be more progressive in a certain sense. Uh, he's certainly not captive to special interests necessarily, like at least not like uh, some previous presidents. He, he seems to say the right things a lot of times, like his instincts are very good, I think, and his instincts are pro-union, but he's got a lot of staff that are very eclectic, some very smart, some very opportunistic, some very from a previous generation, and they're like dragging down the whole ship. But in general, I think I agree with this tweet with like the caveat that it does not really apply to foreign policy. It's like the episode we did with Matt Dust and Stephen Wertheim. The foreign policy is basically as it ever was, you know, it's Obama, but in a different context, it's still liberal primacy. We're making a super dangerous world and we act like people like Biden are going to be in charge forever and ever. And that's obviously not true. So all this progressive stuff, 
I think it's more true on dom- uh, domestic stuff than on foreign policy. And I also don't understand like where this goes. Like, okay, so the you know the Democratic Party has like co-opted some progressive energy. So they they consult with certain NGOs. They consult with certain grassroots within uh, the Democratic Party or Working Families Party or something. What does that end up translating into? Where does that leave us? when Biden leaves in two years or even six years, if we're lucky, you know, like our, we're still got a fucking fascist opposition. You know, we still have problems whose scale vastly exceeds what we're doing to address it. And so like, I, I wonder how much progressive energy is getting co-opted and then being fed into an arc of history that still ends in a, a nightmare rainbow. Or are we on like, a better arc of history bending toward justice something something i don't know what i know for sure is that this this characterization does not apply to foreign policy and leonard actually like i said that and leonard agreed with me so yeah i agree i mean i think it reflects that bernie fashions himself a deal maker at the end of the day right Mm -hmm. and so he's done a lot of work to or he did a lot of work to try to bring biden along and i think I think you're right. I think that's very reflective in the domestic side of things because I've been very surprised. It's interesting because it seems like the administration has like been like, go as for- hard and forward leaning as you want to be. Like the NLRB is a really mm-hmm. great example, right? Um, and how aggressive they've been. And that's great. But it it's so... I don't know. It's just, it's all still so disconnected from like the lives of everyday people in a lot of ways. Right. Like, or when push comes to shove, fundamentally things don't change. And so I I just have a concern, right. Where politicians use this language that resonates, nothing changes yet again. And it, it continues to drive this like Trump effect essentially of like people looking for someone to blow up the system, but ultimately those people often get co-opted by the system or they're in it for themselves and not actually in it to like blow up the system. Right. And, or one, and one person also can't do it. Right. There has to be actual people power behind them. Yeah. But are you like, you, you invest a bunch of money in semiconductors, but you also cut the expanded childcare tax credit. You cut food stamps, but you're also subsidizing the fucking next generation technology. Is that not creating the tale of two cities, but on steroids, you know, as long as there's going to be as long as public policy allows the perpetuation of like a really large underclass in society that just like lives economically insecure and you're not doing anything about that and you're allowing that to get worse, you think those People are going to support a status quo agenda or policy, you know, like they're going to go hard, probably reactionary. (laughs) And so, like, we're not doing ourselves any favors there. Yeah. Yeah, it was a bit surprising that uh, Bernie took this, you know, very supportive position. It's very different than the Bernie Sanders on the 2020 campaign trail or 2016. Yeah. I was talking to somebody, a diplomat, like just a couple days ago, a foreign diplomat. So, like, they're aware of U.S politics kind of through in a voyeuristic way not a student of it and they had this understanding that bernie was a a communist or something and is like mm-hmm. god damn like that's the that's the kind of like message that our foreign policy apparatus is allowing other foreign policy apparatuses to believe mm-hmm. and it's like 
Bernie's not even a socialist. You know? like, he's a New Deal Democrat, slightly more progressive. You know, like it's I, I say that favorably, but like it's it's just <laughs> such a radical difference from the radicalism that like the popular perception is of him. You know, he's deal maker. He's a pragmatist, a pragmatist idealist. Mm -hmm. I don't know what's wrong with that. But like the idea that people would come away with this like loose impression that Bernie's a radical. Well, it just shows how radical these days is slowly but surely in the center. <laughs> There's Unless a radical you're center kind of problem too, yeah. Speaking of radical center, Hunter, what do you got? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know how that segues. I don't, I, uh, <laughs> I don't know either. <laughs> I'm not great no, at segues. I've got a tweet from, I hope I'm pronouncing this right. I've spoken with him off and on over the years. Andrew Nachemson, he's a journalist uh, and has done fantastic work on Cambodia and Myanmar. Andrew has a tweet about the closing of Voice of Democracy in Cambodia. Uh, he says, VOD English, at VOD English, has been at the forefront of exposing, exposing rampant modern slavery in Cambodia. Read one of their investigations linking a major politically connected tycoon to human trafficking and forced labor scam operations. So beyond this individual story, uh, the, the wider context is that uh, Hun Sen, the dictator in Cambodia, has just ordered the closure of uh, one of the last remaining independent media outlets in Cambodia, which is really part of a trend uh, clamping down on civil society, the media, critics of Hun Sen's uh, now more than three decades of rule, and really just creating the structure of a family oligarchy to prolong his uh, regime in power. Uh, and that comes at the cost of uh, the independent media groups like VOD English, who have done great work reporting uh, the existence of modern day slavery in Cambodia, uh, oftentimes in the form of Chinese casinos being built uh, with cronies signing off on these uh, large developments that displace villagers and destroy the environment. Uh, and the more that these outlets are silenced, the more Cambodia has essentially become uh, a client state of China's. Um, and this is not to say that it's uh, going in this direction completely silently or in a, in a happy way. In fact, uh, there are protests uh, against China's expanding presence um, in, in the country. And I read a statistic yesterday that the seaside town of Sihanoukville, sorry, this is getting a bit in the weeds on my Southeast Asia beat, um, but as many as 90% of the businesses in Sihanoukville are now owned by uh, Chinese um, uh, businessmen business persons. Um, so China has really transformed Cambodia and uh, furthered inequality while the Cambodian state has willingly uh, gone along with this and to the detriment of Cambodia's democracy and really uh, robbing the next generation of uh, rights that their parents saw um, as uh, much more likely under the 1990 elections that were brokered as part of the UN deal ending the Cambodian civil war in the 80s and 90s. So this was not the tweet that I thought you were going to do. And my radical oh. centrist thing was about the tweet I thought you were going to do. This was actually <laughs> really good. So I've, I've, I suck at admin. But Cambodia has been admin. like uh, anything that involves details, basically. But the, <laughs> the Cambodia like situation, I don't know if it's just the algorithms feeding me the right stuff, but it's been on my mind a lot lately. And I've been seeing more and more news about what's going on there. Like there's things happening and in including what you're mentioning here, like 
two thoughts. One, I've said before, where Chinese capital goes, it adapts to and exacerbates whatever conditions are prevailing. And in Cambodia, you already had these like the wealth in society was skewed already. Authoritarianism was already present, you know, and um, so Chinese capital is obviously going to make that that worse. But China, Cambodia is also like the exactly the kind of problem that we we could actually be involved in and do something about and improve if we had a more enlightened sense of how to do economic statecraft. We have mm. leverage over Hun Sen in the form of odious debt and the ability to adjust textile export quotas, you know, among other things. We have tools, we have instruments that we could be using, but we're just not. And, and Vin, you've mentioned um, debt relief before. There's a prime example here in Cambodia where a former general that we put in power in 1970 uh, apparently owed the United States millions of dollars and Cambodia has for decades um, lobbied uh, the uh, lobbied Washington for debt forgiveness here because essentially we're holding Cambodia hostage to debt that a dictator the U.S. helped get to power still owes and uh, the current government has nothing to do with. That's right. So legal well, odious, odious debt is a legal term that refers to debt that was accrued by like previous illegitimate regimes and then a new a new society, a new regime is then forced to repay that debt. That's unfair by any standard. It's not reasonable. It's only reasonable if you're like a banker who's trying to get your repayment. And the fact that like some of this debt is actually not corporate, but sovereign, it's US government lending. We could just zero mm. that out. Nobody would fucking know, you know, like it means nothing to us. But Wendy Sherman went to Cambodia last year, 2021, and insisted on like a repayment schedule, same as ever. And it's like, do you wonder why Hun Sen is so lined up with China? Do you wonder why China has like taken over the economy is probably a strong like overstatement, but that China is so embedded there in ways that distort the local situation. Well, we're making them re they like we impose a kind of debt unsustainability on them and we have no new capital to offer them. So it's like, well, what the fuck are they going to do? You know, that's the thing. It's like, what's the alternative? And it's so interesting to me that in so many different contexts, the right, you know, the, the data shows that like the, you know, the more unequal a society is, the more violent and conflict prone it is. And so, right. Like I constantly am thinking about like, if the U S government actually wanted to create peace and security internationally, like, it should focus on addressing inequality and doing so in a way that provides an economic alternative to go, you know, governments essentially getting to bed with predatory lenders. Yeah. But like the, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, but like the, the key aspect is that all of like what the U S government is not doing is understanding its own like predatory role, but also the fact that in a lot of cases, it's actually enabling a predatory government, right. That is not actually interested in addressing inequality or upholding human rights or like improving governance. Right. And so it's like this, I don't know, there's like, the, there's never the, this, like um, this cost benefit analysis, right. Of how all of these kind of different approaches might impact the subject countries and Cambodia, I mean, it just feels like such a, I feel like, you know, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, like it's, they're all countries that the U.S. has a real tendency to go and bomb countries and then just kind of like ignore them for decades, right? And 
Or worse. And we wonder why they like become. We did that in the Pacific too. You know, it's we. We, it's there's something about American exceptionalism that makes us externalize, interact with the world as if nothing we do is responsible for the world that we're interacting with. And we see things that we don't like and we have no sense that like what we did at time one affected what emerged at time two or time three. And it's like, how do you live in a world where you are apart from history, but you're also you also think that you're like writing history and imposing on history like what the fuck is that you know well there's this is a very good example cambodia is like case in point we've said this before but like the the false frame of human rights versus national security you know to the extent that economic precarity drives sources of conflict uh in society which we've seen elsewhere many many times over separate from the whole like china supporting kleptocracy supporting oligarchy problem it's just the fact of like extreme economic desperation drives drives conflict drives insecurity it makes the world that like we have to deal with in a fearful way so why would you not try to improve a human rights situation via economic statecraft so that you can avoid creating that world that you fear there's a there's a way of separating human rights and national interests that makes it impossible to actually serve national interests you know which is kind of the tradition that we're trapped in and it's like if you took an enlightened view of the national interest you would recognize economic drivers of insecurity and then you're off to the races with like starting a virtuous cycle instead of a tragic cycle in uh foreign affairs Mm -hmm. all right so i'm up for tweet so well okay so i'll do the first one that i shared which um is a tweet from ryan morgan who's a hill staffer and uh he was quote tweeting um an intercept article uh that doc that covered um a recent bipartisan letter or i'm sorry piece of legislation from that was co-sponsored by 160 members of Congress um, that, you know, the the resolve clauses in legislation, so like the ones that actually have the force of law, basically, um, are just about like supporting, you know, Iranian democracy and Iranian human rights in light of the current protests. But in, in the whereas clauses, it endorses um, Maryam Rajavi, who is the leader of the MEK, which up until, I don't know, about a decade ago, the U.S. had as a designated terror group. Now, I have a lot of challenge. I have a lot of problems with how the U.S. like designates sanctions and does terror designations. But, um, you know, it like basically all of these members of Congress have now endorsed this like foreign opposition group that has actively like killed Iranians. It certainly doesn't have a lot of support in country um, and has, you know, as other international actors have done, have tried to kind of paint themselves as like the face of an uh, an Iranian alternative to the current government. Right. Um, Despite the fact that when you dig into MEK's belief, it's more of like a death cult at the end of the day. And I'm not even being like exaggerating when I they had a, but they had like a sex abuse ring or something too. Like they were, you they know, were cults exist around the world, and they all have yeah. quite similar characteristics. At the end of the day, often, 
But I, I think like what Ryan's highlighting in his tweet is just how basically, you know, members are deciding to sign on to legislation to co-sponsor them because their staffer is receiving an incoming request, right? In this case, it might have been from a group saying they're representing the Iranian diaspora. And so these staffers who are receiving these incoming, they're often what are called the in the House, especially, which is where this legislation originated. They're called legislative correspondents. These these are like one step up from a staff assistant, which is like the receptionist, essentially. But don't get me wrong. They do so much work for such little pay. I'm not demeaning any of these positions. But the reality is, is that they're staffed by folks who are like, you know, 22, just out of school, maybe got moved up into these roles from an internship. So they're not necessarily um, seasoned in all of the politics of foreign countries. And I think it's especially when progressives talk about like, you know, representing voices from the ground, that kind of peppers over a key aspect of how to build alliances transnationally, right, is understanding that there are politics in foreign countries, just as there are politics in the United States, right? And not only that, there's also politics within diasporas um, that do mm -hmm. sometimes reflect views on the ground, but often do not, um, and are a result of like a severe trauma that occurred, which is why they're no longer in their home country a lot of the time, right? And so they'll misrepresent their interests or they'll miss they'll like speak in the language that we want to, they think we want to hear sometimes, but like they mean something else. Well, and I think with Iran, it's like, Oh, we just need to restore the monarchy. Mm. Right. Cause that, that's what the, the coup over the 1979 coup overturned, of course, you know, the CIA and yeah, yeah. monarchy in 1953. And so I think there's a, there's just what Ryan is trying to talk about in this tweet is that we're we're essentially like ceding power on policy to like 20 year olds who are completely overworked, underpaid and like do not have support a lot of the time. And so you get things like this where like you have that that bills co-sponsors it's republicans and democrats it's not just moderate democrats there are some progressives in there right and i think um there's even folks like ted lu um who i you know knowing him i don't think he would really he would be down with the mek um but i think that the other aspect of this that i really want to get at um, and this is just like a PSA for all Hill staffers out there is like the US government should not be in the job of picking winners and losers of foreign government or foreign countries politics, right? Like we consistently have a track record of doing a terrible job at doing that, right? And so if anything, right, it goes back to that principle of first doing no harm. And then from there thinking about what can actually be constructive. But, you know, I constantly go back to like the fact that Congress lobotomized itself by getting rid of the Office of Technology Assessment in like the late 90s, early aughts. Is that what we call the aughts? Um, the early 2000s. Um, and and so, so much of policymaking is just being responsive to lobbyists at the end of the day. And so, you know, it's with the rise of disinformation and social media, not being able to tell people who, who they are, right? Like, it's a huge problem in terms of national security. Like I, it's just a, it, 
<laughs> it's increasingly like our entire government could become useful idiots if we just continue kind of under investing, I think, in the actual intellectual capacity of these institutions. Progressive Caucus in particular has just massive staffing and expertise shortfalls. Like there's just not the manpower is not there. Like somebody told me AOC has like not even one full time foreign policy. Like there's there's one person covering foreign policy, but foreign policy is not their only thing in their portfolio. So like that is not a good situation if you expect Justice Democrats and people like her to be representing an alternative position consistently, because like, how do you advocate for that? How do you vet the million taskers that flow through like legislative correspondence, you know, like you got to have bodies and resources. That's right. We got to build a pipeline. I mean, that was part of the like challenge with the Biden administration. They were, you know, rhetorically, they were open to receiving (laughs) progressive staff resumes. Right. But there's not that deep of a bench on foreign policy. There's a huge bench on domestic policy, but hasn't really been invested in. Shout out to uh, Library of Congress, who's always produced terrific research, but uh, it's probably underutilized on the Hill. Um, CRS, I mean, the Congressional Research Service, which is part of the Library of Congress, is... That's what I meant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're they're like the best human beings ever. They should get all the money. (laughs) I don't know how they do it in this environment. Like, it's not... Well, but there's also the risk of politicization there, right? So the way that works is like each issue has like one person focused on it. And so like everyone comes at issues with their own biases. So it's just... Again, it's like they rely on CRS. That's what they have. Sometimes they have GAO. That's not enough. Yeah. Not enough, especially for how big the federal government is. I mean, we need heritage foundation level stuff. Like, what's the progressive AEI? Like, that's what we need, you know? Or I'm sure analysis. Are you ready for this? All right. All right. So here we go. So um, folks might have missed it. I missed it when it happened. Uh, Brett McGurk, who is Biden's Shut Middle the East. Fuck up. Sorry. It's okay. I like dogs. <laughs> Sorry. That was also like the best intro to Brett McGurk. <laughs> <laughs> but McGurk, so he gave a speech at the Atlantic Council a few weeks ago, laying out, quote unquote, the Biden doctrine. Uh, for Middle East policy. And, um, you know, it's nice to see a clear articulation of a policy framework from government, some transparency. I can't say that it was very specific um, or heartening, (laughs) Um, but we'll walk a little bit through it um, and talk about it. So it starts with kind of these five principles or declarations, as he calls them, that are partnerships, deterrence, diplomacy, integration, and values. He gets brownie points for like making them easy one word, because <laughs> that's always appreciated, right? Um, but in describing all of these, to me, what really came out was that this is like peace through strength 3.0. Yeah. Um, it just really seems like a containment strategy for Iran at the end of the day. Um, what, you know, when it came to he was, and again, he he did offer examples of the way they're quote unquote delivering results with this strategy, right? Um, but for me, the question is always like results for whom, 
And all of the results that he lays out are, you know, benefits for elites um, or what are ultimately like predatory states. Um, and so he, you know, he laid, he talked about the Abraham Accords and expanding those, which at the end of the day are really like an authoritarian alliance that just codifies through pre-existing it's all authoritarian alliances, man. That's like the core. Right? And it's like, not around mm-hmm. at the end of the day. And like, the thing is, is so much of this, right? It comes from, this is what Trump wanted to push through, mm-hmm. but could never get through, right? MBS, the crown prince in Saudi Arabia, has proposed this like Middle East security architecture 12 different times (laughs) since the Obama era. And, you know, it's never taken off. Now, I think folks think because of the Abraham Accords and because Israel is now involved, like there might be something different. But again, the the basis of these normalization deals is not peace. It's essentially agreeing to put the Palestinian question aside in these in these bilateral relationships in favor, right, of of what are material benefits from the United States. So like Morocco, right, got recognition of the Western Sahara um, from the United States. Um, the first international government to do so, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, um, Bahrain, UAE, both got arms deal, massive arms deals out of the agreements. Um, and there hasn't really been a benefit to people on the ground. The other example he cites are military exercises as a form of deterrence. And to me, what's so frustrating about the conversation about the Gulf vis-a-vis Iran and deterrence is that, you know, it doesn't go back to first principles of like why Iran developed its ballistic missiles in the first place, right? It was a reaction to a military buildup in the GCC states, right? Mm -hmm. It's not to say that they're innocent, but it's you know, just like in conversations about North Korea, we have to recognize that other countries have security concerns and require security guarantees to some degree, right? And if we don't take those seriously, our efforts at de-escalating through escalation often just cause escalation at the end of the day. Um, and so, you know, it's it's. I found it odd that he like cites this failed attack on Saudi Arabia in November 2022 as like evidence of this working yeah. and it was just because the US alliance is Saudi Arabia what and also of a non-falsifiable claim right yeah that was was the whole thing was fucking non-falsifiable yeah but like it also doesn't contextualize what was happening in november 2022 and if you look at the statements from iran and like the media reports that they were reacting to right like there there's always been media wars between iran and saudi out funded outlets in the middle east Mm -hmm. always and so whenever a saudi outlet amplifies you know unrest and Iran or vice versa, right? There's accusations of foreign interference and Iran would find it very beneficial if it could sell its domestic unrest as a foreign um, plot, right? And so it's, again, there's like these, (laughs) it's like, you're saying that this potentially could have happened, but also in theory, Iran already attacked Saudi Arabia back in 2019, was it? 2020, right? On the Ramco oil installations and and again right an enduring u.s military presence the alliance with saudi arabia didn't prevent any of that and so to me this kind of whole doctrine that is laid out 
it's not just Obama 2.0. It's like we completely forgot anything from what we learned post-2011 in the region, right? The goal he lays out at the top is stability, which has always been the U.S. goal in the region. And 2011 was supposed to show us that that goal is incredibly short-sighted, not only for people in the region and like whose everyday lives that affects, right? By us like bolstering militaries instead of social services and other things. Yeah. And so anyway, it was so disturbing to me about like McGurk's approach. And I think, you know, it's reflected in the administration's approach to the region is he's like still so caught up in this Trump framing that like the government is a business. We're going to be the partner of choice in the region, a partner for who, right? These like arms buying elites who, who like run foreign militaries that are friendly to you. Again, it's like this idea that if we have these proxy forces, I guess the theory is, is so long as the war isn't here, it's fine. But I just think we've had like 20 years of that and not showing that that doesn't actually work. It makes things worse. Um, And then the final thing I'll say, because I cannot leave it alone, is just the discussion of values. It was like a word, and then no values were made. Footnote (laughs) at the end, no examples. (laughs) Except the citation of like US allies voting on Ukraine at the UN because they care about sovereignty, (laughs) ignoring that like the U.S. is actively helping undermine sovereignty by shielding Israel from any critique of its ongoing occupation. It is wild. Mm. So anyway, I just, again, it's like this quintessential example of like, who are we actually conducting foreign policy for, Uh right? And who are we aiding in the process? And I I go back to the scholarship of late uh, Charles T. Call. He was like a Brookings peacebuilding scholar. And he wrote this paper about the fallacy of failed states. And he's like, they're not failed states. We just keep trying to make the state better. But the states we're trying to make better are harming their own people. And so, of course, this is going to create more insecurity, more distrust, right? Like all of these various things. And so it's, I don't know, friends, it just seems so logical sometimes. And I just want to pull my hair out. So that's why I wanted to have it be our armchair analysis. Because I thought we had like learned something from the Arab uprisings in 2011. Just something. I don't know what. Yeah, I think you're pulling it all the threads. What's the worst region of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East or Asia? <laughs> I feel like- you know, a couple things that bothered me about this piece um and i should caveat by saying you know i give brett mcgurk the benefit of the doubt i actually um had a a great deal of respect for him you know in in his public criticism of the trump administration's policies and um uh you know i'll I'll just leave that there but uh you know two aspects of this speech that really sort of stood out to me the first is the assumption of literally quote-unquote permanent u.s military presence in the middle east as the necessary precondition for the stability, right? I mean, Van mentioned peace through strength. That's exactly what we're talking about here, right? If the goal is stability, is a side goal ensuring permanent U.S. security presence in the region, or is that the prerequisite for uh, stability? I'm not sure um, we have a good track record there on stability linked to U.S. security presence or activity in the region. The other really galling uh, 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 excerpt that got me was when he gets on to the rules-based international order, 
one of our favorite catchphrases, right? Uh, he says the United States will support and strengthen partnerships with countries that subscribe to this RBIO, and we will make sure that those countries can defend themselves against foreign threats. But how are countries like Saudi Arabia and Egypt supporting the rules-based international order? It's the, it's the same problem I have with the like-mindeds. You know, I, I don't see the shared values here personally. Um, and as Kate has pointed out at length, uh, there's a logical inconsistency in propping up dictators who undermine those values that we uh, try to espouse in the first place. So self-fulfilling cycle of instability. Yeah, um, and like, that's all. Than, like no voicing of the values, almost. Yeah. Like I'm like just just be transactional and be honest about it. Like you'd actually mm -hmm. have be a lot more credible. Like at least you're not lying. <laughs> yeah, there would be something in being consistent and not hypocritical, erasing hypocrisy from our. Our, our statecraft would be big, even if it went in the dark direction, because at least then we know what we're dealing with. And so does the rest of the world. You know, Matt Duss had this great thing when we were doing the um, Biden Doctrine podcast episode. He was like, the Biden administration has set up foreign policy as a contest of democracy against autocracy. And in the Middle East, it has staunchly chosen the latter. And it's like, that is exactly fucking right. And McGurk said a bunch of magic words to validate that basically these principles i fuck these were very hollow i mean what do you mean by them the example you could have created counter examples that would have been justified just as well by these same principles like they can be used to justify anything you cannot operationalize these things in any consistent way there's no criteria here and then also principle two deterrence deterrence is not a principle it is a <laughs> It is a, a way of wagering on stability through mutual fear. It's inherently precarious. It is not something that it's not, you don't set it as like, okay, this is what we're trying to do in perpetuity or whatever. If you claim you want stability, your principle can't be fucking deterrence. I, I don't understand what we're doing in the Middle East anymore. I get in like the 70s, you have the oil shock and shit, you know, 80s. Maybe into the nineties. You want stability. You you're playing these balancing games. You're really trying to maintain you're operationalizing in the Middle East this larger objective of strategic primacy or preeminence in every mm -hmm. domain. And you're it's very mm -hmm. obvious that that's what you're doing. It's the only element of coherence in what we're doing, it seems like sometimes. It's not clear to me like you have diplomacy as one of your principles, but for some reason that doesn't cash out as like a nuclear deal with Iran. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> or like a new regional security order that brings Iran into the fold, right? That is based on regional detente. Like, that's what needs to happen. That's what's needs to happen for decades, right? And it's like, we all know this. <laughs> that's what th this is like all a bunch of rhetorical, like, misdirection to me. Or it's this, it's verbal masturbation or whatever. Like this stuff doesn't mean anything that he's saying. He's just trying to validate or like get a, get us off his back for doing the same shit that they've ever, always been doing. And they don't want us to call them out for fucking doing a Trump plus foreign policy in the Middle East. Just like in fucking Asia. Just like in fucking everywhere. McGurk, to Hunter's point, McGurk took this grandstanding approach to condemning Trump publicly and like leaving the administration when a huff and all this stuff acting so principled, but the policies that he wants to do are basically all Trump 
and more like going in that direction even more so and it's like what the fuck is that yeah middle east well and the thing about i like i i too appreciate this the speaking truth to power but i also like to point out like what he chose to speak truth to power about right when it comes to like the tweet withdrawal in syria i mean oh yeah it was about like troop withdrawal yeah well and and to be i mean this is a whole different conversation but like this policy right now is basically like or it had been at recent, they like recently redeployed the troops, but like it was basically like leaving US troops out in the middle of <laughs> a zone that we had no control. We were occupying Syria essentially mm-hmm. to like continue to maintain the oil, right? And it's, and, and Trump wanted to use that as a negotiating chip. And, and then Turkey was like, no, we want, you know, there's this whole background of the deal making that they had in terms of and this is again. So it's like it's not lost on me, too. That like the Kurds were basically like an experiment in real social democracy. And we were playing a buffering role, preserving that. And that's what got abandoned, yes. you know, and that's like, of really all the things up at the same time. The U.S. government was never going to be there permanently. There's no buy-in. There's no authorization mm-hmm. from Congress for those troops to be there. They're technically in violation of international law by occupying Syrian yeah. land. So it's and like there are constant near incursions between U.S. troops um, and Iranian and Syrian and Russian forces. Right. And so there's just again, it's like. I think there's a lot of career civil servants are still very good at political posturing, I think is what I would say. And I think he is a perfect example of someone who has, you know, read political tea leaves and kind of continued to use his knowledge of the process and the system inside government, right, to continue status quo at the end of the day. I think like there's been some amendments, but when again, you just have these kind of like, I would say like hangovers almost of this worldview that isn't actually really accurate or is at least disconnected, I think, from the experiences that like the U.S. government so-called constituencies are experiencing, right? Like there's Mm -hmm. no interest from people in the states for the U.S. government to be building air and maritime security architecture and like missile defense in Saudi Arabia. Like it's not creating American jobs, right? It's going to the bottom line of a contractor, um, probably maybe a multinational one, right? Like there's just all of these dynamics of like, what are, again, it's like, like you were just saying, what are we even doing in the Middle East? Like, what is the goal? Because there's there's no theory of change. Like this is not a theory of change by any means, and it like doesn't rely at all on like human beings in the region. Is what I found really interesting. It like didn't really talk about Mm -hmm. people or like social change or anything like that. Yeah, I I hated everything about this (laughs) Biden doctrine in the Middle East thing. Um, I venture to say McGurk is probably not friend of the pod. (laughs) We'll just leave it at that, I guess. The ultimate burn. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing worse than not being a friend of the pod, maybe. Don't listen to this episode. (laughs) Yeah. Atlantic Council is also interesting because, like, they have some good people doing, like, genuinely good analysis there. And then they have some pots of money that are, like, really sketchy. And they come out and do come out with, like, policy advocacy stuff that's, like, very propagandistic sometimes and not good. And then they had the controversy where, like, Emma Ashford and that crowd. Mm. kind of left and like 
it's a very mixed bag. They take um, a lot of the, Emirati money, you know. <laughs> yeah. And the whole like lining up with Turkey thing, I, you know, that that's not good either. So yeah, not so many things that are like controversial there. And yet there's ways in which the Atlantic Council is like better than many of its peers in D.C. And it's like, that's a fucking, that's damning with faint praise right there. Anyway, okay. All right, well, have we emptied the chamber here? Yeah, I think so. Also, let's, I think we should stop naming, like, doctrines. Like, let's stop doing Obama doctrine and Trump doctrine. I just, I don't know. They're all the same! <laughs> I think somebody had a piece a few years ago in Foreign Affairs calling for the end of doctrines. I can't remember who wrote that. I don't know, I'll have to look it up. All right, gang, that's going to do it. Uh, buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic to buy us coffees. Keep the lights on. Uh, and I forget what the other things I say at the end is. It's been a while. Is it Cotton Bureau? Oh, yeah. Cottonbureau.com. Uh, search undiplomatic. All right. This is all fucked. All right. Peace. <laughs>